For the last two Sundays, I've told you that we were going to depart from Mark. And I did, I did, I think, pretty sure I said last week, unless the Lord shows me otherwise. And as I studied it, we had the triumphal entry is what we normally call this passage. It's in all four Gospels. But I was looking, and we have probably about three more sermons in chapter 10 of Mark where we are. And then we turn the page, so to speak, into chapter 11, and here we are. And I thought, rather than preach on one of the Palm Sunday passages and then come back to it in four weeks, let's just go ahead and jump over. So I do not normally skip ahead, but today we're going to. So we're going to turn, please, to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, this passage is traditionally called the triumphal entry. It occurred on what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. What's it describing? That Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey, and the crowds praised him as the victorious Messiah, the King of Israel. This represents the last of his major public appearances until his crucifixion later that same week. This is only the second time we have an event in Jesus' life that's recorded in all four Gospels. We had the feeding of the 5,000, that's in all four of them, and now we come to Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. So there's something significant about it, I think, something important for us if the Holy Spirit directed all four Gospel writers to tell us about it. I realize there's a little bit of danger in coming to such a familiar passage. Many of you know it. You've studied it. You've heard it taught. You've taught it to children or adults. But I would pray and have been praying that the Lord would open our eyes this morning to see what he wants us to see from this familiar passage. I'm going to read it for us. I'd like you please to stand, and I'm going to read Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they came near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way. And found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together, please. Our father, You are the king. You are the one true God, the living God, the great king. 
And Lord, as we explore this familiar passage this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, that we would have an accurate understanding of what that means, that you would educate us, that you would teach us again, perhaps even teach us something new. Lord, we desire to behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. So we pray you would grant that request. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that you would anoint me, energize me to teach your word accurately. Give us all ears to hear. Show us what you have for us because we know that your word will not return void. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I study through the week, as I come towards Sunday morning, I am generally trying to figure out what are the main ideas? What do I want you to understand? What do I want you to take with you? And then, once I think I know what those are, how can I say them as simply as possible? Usually in as few words as possible is my goal, so that from the youngest to the oldest that we can all be on the same page with these. So this is what I have for this morning. Not profound by any means as far as unique to me, but that I think are clear from this passage. First off, God keeps his promises. And we'll see that more than just verses 1 through 6, but we'll see it first in verses 1 through 6. God keeps his promises. Second, Jesus is king. You say, I already know that, Bob. Yes, I'm glad. But that's what the passage says. It says Jesus is the king. We're going to see how and why this passage is revealing him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the promised one. That's verses 7 through 10. And then the last verse we're going to look at this morning, that Israel rejected its king. Verse 11, Israel rejected its king. So we'll go back to verse 1 and this first point, that God keeps his promises. Now you may be wondering, what kind of promises are we talking about here? Well, there are multiple fulfilled prophecies in this passage, and really more than I'm going to have time to deal with today, or that you're going to want me to deal with today. But promises that God would send a rescuer to deliver his people from sin. That the promised Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. That he would arrive in Jerusalem on the exact date prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Daniel. That he would arrive riding a donkey. And that when he arrived, suddenly, he would enter his temple. These are all Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in these few verses. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Now we're a little out of order in our series embark. But it says, they drew near Jerusalem. He has been headed to Jerusalem for some time. He keeps predicting, I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again the third day. He's told them that. But I'm going to Jerusalem. He's been headed to Jerusalem for some time. You could say that even back at Caesarea Philippi, when he asked his disciples, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From then, he has been working his way south, and eventually he knew his destination was Jerusalem. So they're there. They've arrived at their destination of Jerusalem. 
when did they arrive? Because it says, now when they came near Jerusalem. That is on purpose. Jesus has been directing all of this according to his sovereign plan and his sovereign timing. I believe, and from what I've seen, the majority of Bible scholars believe that this is on Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. It's the first day of the week. And he arrived there in what we would call Passion Week. He's there on Sunday, arriving in Jerusalem. It is the beginning of the Passover festival, the Passover feast that Israel had been celebrating ever since the time of the Exodus. What were they celebrating? That God had rescued them, had delivered them from the oppression of those who had enslaved them. Who's that? Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they're celebrating, this is how God brought us out. This is how God delivered us. This is how God brought us out of slavery. That's the festival that they're celebrating. Now, if you're familiar with that at all, you understand, you can look at it at Exodus 12 later if you want to, they celebrated that by eating certain things and they had to prepare something. If the household was too small or too poor, they could share with another household, but they needed a lamb. They needed a spotless lamb. And what were they going to do with that lamb? They were going to shed its blood and basically paint the doorposts of their house, the sides and the top, so that the death angel would pass them by, pass over them. That's where the Passover term comes from. So this day, this Sunday of that week, would have been the day that many travelers were bringing their lamb to be inspected. I'll come back to that later. Those are some of the things going on on this particular day at the beginning of the Passover festival. The population of the city of Jerusalem tripled during that occasion, really all the feasts, but many came for the Passover to celebrate it. Lots of people coming, just as Jesus and his disciples and others from Judea at that point were coming together. And these, these towns, these names, Bethphage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, may or may not be familiar. You say, well, yeah, I know it's somewhere near Jerusalem. So here's a map that might help a little bit. They come in, and Bethany is here, the Mount of Olives is here, and Jerusalem is there. And we think that Bethphage is there. And if you have a different pronunciation for that word, I looked it up a few years ago, and I think it's technically Bethphage, and that's just such a weird thing. I'm going to say Bethphage. But we think it's between Bethany and Jerusalem, right there by the Mount of Olives. That's where we are. I have an aerial view that somebody's kind of marked where we think they are. don't know if that helps any, but the topography is that we have the Mount of Olives up high, and if you will, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, also up high. So when, when Christ and his disciples and all the other pilgrims who are coming got to the top of the Mount of Olives, that ridge, they could see the Temple Mount. They could see Jerusalem before them. Bethany is important in other places, particularly in John. We read about that being the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was also the home of Simon the leper. We'll get to him later in the book of Mark. So that's where they are. That's when they arrived. And when they came near Jerusalem, we were near those towns, it says he sent two of his disciples. Which ones? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. The level of detail here suggests that one of these disciples was an eyewitness telling Mark about it. And which disciple do we believe was closely associated with Mark? Peter. So it's possible that Peter was one of them. Some people think that 
maybe Peter and John did this together just like they arranged for the upper room later in the week. I don't know. What I do know is two of them went. Go to the village opposite you. Many people believe he's talking about Bethphage. What are they supposed to do when they get there? They're supposed to get a colt. You're going to find a colt tied on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it. Why a donkey? This is fulfilling multiple Old Testament prophecies. We think of a donkey, well, isn't that just like a farm animal? We don't have a lot of high regard for a donkey, but he chose a donkey because he's fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies and it's also identifying him as the Messiah who's coming at this point in peace, not to make war. Different from what we think, a donkey was a kingly animal, going back to the time of David. And that actually identifies himself with the line of David. What are you talking about, Bob? Well, years ago, now probably, we studied Genesis. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we have prophecies that Jacob blessed his sons and said, this is what's going to happen with this son or tribe, we could say, and this tribe and this tribe. And he gets to Judah. And that's the first time we see Judah associated with a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In that same paragraph, we have a verse. I'm going to read part of it. Genesis 49, 11. Jacob is prophesying about his son Judah. And he says, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So going all the way back to Genesis is a fulfillment of this, associating the donkey with Judah and then later with David. Because 1 Kings 1 describes the coronation of Solomon. And part of that involved Solomon riding on the king's own mule. David had a royal donkey. And the fact that Solomon got to ride that showed this is the son who is going to be my heir, my successor, the next king. Who is Jesus? One of his titles, the son of David. It's important that he be from the tribe of Judah, that he be the son of David. And both of these actually are related to a donkey of all things. But more than that, and if you have a, a reference Bible, you probably have this cross-reference, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king, there it is, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding in a Rolls Royce, riding in a chariot. No, not even a Lamborghini. Instead, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the prophecy made so many years prior, your king's coming to you. And when he comes, this is how you're going to know. This is how you're going to recognize. He's going to be riding on the colt of a donkey. So this is to identify him as one who is coming in peace. This is not a war horse. This is not a chariot like the Romans would have done. He's coming humbly, as that passage says. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A donkey on which no one has sat. So what? In their culture, an animal that had not been used for labor, had not been, been ridden, was considered holy, set apart, special. What's more interesting to me is that means this donkey has not ever been ridden before, right? Hasn't been broken. Have any of you been around breaking horses or, or similar animals? Does it usually 
happen just like that? No, it doesn't. So that is a miracle in itself that he was able to ride this unbroken colt. But remember, he's the creator. And this is one of his creatures, and it is just simply submitting to him. Verse 3, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it here. Jesus obviously foresaw that somebody may question you on this. He's anticipating that. And if somebody asks you, then here's what you should say. The Lord has need of it. What did he mean by Lord? Because Lord can be describing God, or Lord can be just like we would use sir, meaning Lord or master. Either way, I think it's probably master rather than God, but either way, the person who owned the donkey must have been familiar with the claims of Jesus, who he was. And so recognized him as the Lord and master, and if he has need of it, sure. But isn't that an amazing statement? That the creator of the universe, he created everything, that he would have need of anything. How is that even possible? Well, he became man. He came to dwell among us. He humbled himself, Philippians says. And in so doing, his parents had to borrow a manger. Several times in his ministry, he was borrowing boats. We come to here and he's borrowing, he's renting a donkey. They borrowed an upper room. He was buried in what? A borrowed tomb. We see his humility. We see that he is submitting to the will of the Father and humbling himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now Jesus had been ministering by this point for plus or minus three years. And he'd been walking all the time. He occasionally rode on a boat, as we know. Generally, he was walking. This is the only time in any of the Gospels that we have a record of Jesus riding an animal. I'm not saying he never did, but we don't have record of it if he did. So he's accustomed to walking. What would cause him to do things differently on this particular day? As a matter of fact, you may be wondering, what's so special about riding a donkey into Jerusalem for the Passover? Weren't there lots of people coming from different parts of the world? Yes. Weren't some of them able to afford an animal and riding an animal? Yes, probably so. But here's the thing. When they got to this final descent from the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, back up into Jerusalem, it was tradition that everyone who was riding an animal would get off the animal. And that you would walk this last little bit. So with that in mind, do you understand that if he's going to get on an animal at that point, when everybody else would be getting off an animal, he's going to stand out from the crowd. He's going to be above the crowd, and he's going to be doing something nobody else is doing. He's going against tradition. Imagine that, Jesus doing that. And he says, go in, tell them, if anybody asks you, say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it. And some of your translations are going to be a little bit different in that verse, because it sounds a little bit more like, I will send the donkey back. You can trust me. 
We just need a little while. I need this colt. And then we're going to send him back. Verse 4. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. It happened exactly how Jesus said it would happen. He had prepared them. He told them what to say. And that's how it happened. So they found the colt. Look at the detail there. By the door outside on the street. I'm not saying that that's theologically important. I'm just saying it's exact. It's precise. It suggests that someone was there seeing it. Perhaps Peter. So let me recap. So far in this section, the two disciples have obeyed Jesus. The owners, and that's who they were, the ones standing by, Luke tells us they were the owners of the donkey. They have obeyed Jesus. The colt is going to obey Jesus. How's it going for you? Are you obeying Jesus? Are you submitting to what he has for you? Are you treating him as Lord and master of your life? So we've begun to see that God keeps his promises with these fulfilled prophecies. Next, we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus is king in verses 7 through 10. So let's start at verse 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. His disciples are the ones who threw their clothes on the donkey. Why? It's never been ridden. They don't have a saddle for it. It wouldn't have known what to do with a saddle. So in order to make it a little more comfortable for him to ride this donkey, they take their outer garments, their cloaks, their jackets, in modern terms, and they put them on the donkey to give a little bit of cushioning, make a, a makeshift saddle. And many others from the crowd spread their clothes on the road. Well, that's kind of weird. This was part of an ancient practice of welcoming a new king. If you want to look it up on your own, 2 Kings 9, 12 and 13, the king is Jehu, who, if I remember correctly, wasn't a very good king. But when he became king, they spread out their garments on the street, making a red carpet, if you will. And then it says leafy branches. You're thinking, well, weren't, weren't they palm branches? Well, Mark says leafy branches. John is the one who tells us they were palm branches. And waving palm branches was a sign of peace. Again, the donkey represents peace. The palm branches represent peace. But they also represented the desire to be delivered. 150 years previously, one of the Maccabees led a revolt, and the symbol of that revolt was a palm branch. So there's a nationalistic part of this as well, that they really would like to overthrow Rome. I'm in verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, quick, unofficial poll. How many of you heard that the word Hosanna means save now? Thank you for those two people. How many of you have heard that the word Hosanna means praise? Thank you for those five people. Okay. The rest of you haven't heard or you're just going to abstain because you think I'm tricking you. I'm not. It means both those things. Um, David Jeremiah's study Bible says that originally the word Hosanna meant save now. But over the years, it came to be used as a simple expression of praise. Kind of like people use the word hallelujah today. They probably, some of them, 
don't even know that means praise the Lord. They just mean, oh, that's wonderful. It may have been that kind of change in language. So it really means both things. It means save now. It means praise. And blessed is he who comes. Again, if you have a, a study Bible or you have a cross-reference there, it's tying it to Psalm 118, verse 26, which says the exact same thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's part of a group of psalms that we call the Hallel. These are psalms that travelers to Jerusalem for festivals, including the Passover, would have been singing, or more accurately, probably chanting to one another as they came. So they would have these memorized. And the Hallel, that's the Hebrew word for praise, hallelujah, yah being the name of God, so praise God. Psalms 113 through 18. And they would be sung at all the religious festivals for the Jews, and definitely at Passover. And what are they singing about? They're singing about, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that would describe everybody who's coming for the festival, but more particularly, it describes the one who is coming in the name of the Lord, the the Messiah, the one who's coming. They're excited to be coming and celebrating the Passover, deliverance. They're excited that... Our Messiah is coming someday. We're praying for that. And they're chanting back and forth is the idea. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. So they're tying the son of David, our father, David, the Messiah, Messiah, the messianic kingdom. They're putting this all together. Hosanna in the highest probably means save us, O God, who lives in heaven. So may our prayers come up before you, O God, save us. And I don't know about you, but Hearing this story, reading it, growing up, in my own mind, I thought most everybody around Jesus, probably everybody in the area, is recognizing Jesus is the Messiah. This is it. This is the moment. This is what we've all been waiting for. And as I've studied it more, I think that there were people feeling that way who thought this is it. Maybe his disciples, some of them were thinking that. But What was happening was a tradition of chanting these psalms back and forth to each other. Jesus would have stood out. He is definitely presenting himself as the king. I just don't know how many were getting it. Maybe that's the best way to say that. Not everyone understood what was going on. Someone wrote, some from the crowd correctly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies, but they did not understand where Jesus' kingship would lead them. Their enthusiasm was for a ruling Messiah and a political kingdom, not realizing and not accepting the fact that the one peaceably riding on the colt was their Messiah. For most people then, this moment of jubilation was simply part of the traditional Passover celebration. Am I saying nobody understood? No, I'm not saying that. I don't think the majority of the people, I don't think the crowd at large all said, This is it. This is the Messiah. He's the one. This is the moment. Because John gives us some honesty. If you look at the parallel in John 12, he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. We were there. We had been with him for three years and we didn't get it. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that those things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. What I'm about to share with you is my own distorted opinion. I think what's going on here is more like what we read in Acts. Acts 19.32, there's an uproar, there's a mob. And what it says there is, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. They didn't know why they were there. 
If you've ever seen on the news or seen in person mobs or rioting, there are some people who are there for the cause, and they know why they're there, and they know what they're doing, and there are some people that are kind of along for the ride. So here, I think there were people who knew there was something very important happening. This has to be related to the Messiah. He's riding on a donkey. He's coming to Jerusalem. There's something going on here. And yet, they're understanding, even the disciples, Messiah is coming because he's going to release us. In fact, this is the perfect time. It's Passover. This is the perfect time for him to throw off the shackles of Rome because this is, we're celebrating him doing the same thing for us back in Egypt. So some of them may have been putting the pieces together and they, maybe they were discussing it and certainly they were chanting back and forth, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save, save in the highest. How many of us have misunderstood who Jesus is? What he came to do and what he's doing in our lives today. He isn't just a good person. He isn't just a good teacher. He isn't even just God. He is God's son, the Savior, the Messiah, sent into the world to save us from sin. And any, any individual who's willing to believe on him for salvation will receive salvation. Have you believed on him for salvation? Is he your Savior? I fear that there are many around the world today who understand that we're entering Holy Week. And many of them would describe themselves perhaps as Christians. But what do they believe about Jesus? I feel like, especially in our country, so many people just want to add Jesus. I'm going to add Jesus to my life because he's going to bless me and everything's going to go well and I'm not going to have any problems. Y'all have been in this study with, of Mark. That's not what he came to do. He came to deal with our sin problem. And in doing so, we have eternal life with him. But that doesn't mean all our problems go away while we're here on earth. In fact, as we were talking about in our small group this past week, he grows us and matures us through trials. Often through trials, maybe even primarily through trials. We need to make sure that our understanding of who this Jesus is, who the Messiah is, is coming from the Bible and not from the culture around us. One more verse and one more point. Israel rejected its king. They misunderstood. I think many of them misunderstood. And ultimately they rejected him. Verse 11 says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When it says the temple there, don't think he's going into the Holy of Holies. It's talking about the temple complex, the area of the temple. And he's observing, he's looking around. Now I told you earlier that this day is the beginning of Passover. That's when people brought their lambs to the temple, to the priest to say, is this one okay? Can this be our family's Passover lamb? And there he is. And I'm not saying that on that day anyone was necessarily taking notice that he was there. But he was there on Sunday. And Mark's going to tell us he was there on Monday. And he was there on Tuesday. And those priests and other leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
they were coming to him and they were observing him and they were checking out the one who is the ultimate, the final Passover lamb. John chapter 1 tells us this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there he is presenting himself in the temple and he did not have any spot or stain or blemish. He was perfect. It says he looked around at all things. This is a phrase we've seen before about Jesus in this gospel. When he would look around the room, when he would look at his disciples, he would make eye contact. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's observing. He, he's seeing what's going on there. This also is the fulfillment of a prophecy. This one may be less known to you, but this is Malachi chapter 3. There it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And those of you who know the Gospel of Mark and know what we'll be studying after this when we get to this part of Mark, what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He cleans house. So this is the prophecy the Lord of hosts, the Messiah is coming and he is going to come suddenly to his temple and he is going to set things straight. He's going to make them right. He's going to clean up the mess. And some people have pointed out this is, this is kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? This is Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming in. He's the king. He's presenting himself on purpose to fulfill all these prophecies to say, here I am. I am the king. This is different from what he's done. How many times in the book of Mark have we had him heal someone or cast out a demon? And he says, don't tell anybody. Yes, I'm going to raise this girl from the dead. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to heal this leper. Don't tell anybody. In the book of John, we read over and over, my time has not yet come. His hour had not come. This is it. He is putting things in order. This is, we're not going to get to it today. I'm not even sure Mark talks about it. But the Gospels tell us that those who were plotting his death behind the scenes said, no, let's not do it during the Passover. That's the wrong time. That'll, that'll cause all kinds of problems. This was his time. Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And this is it. This is the moment, this is the week at least, that he had come for. And he is presenting himself on purpose, different from anything he's done in his ministry for three years before this. Now, all of a sudden, show them, tell them, I am the king. Everybody look at me. Yes, it's fine. You praise me. Luke says that the Pharisees were finding fault and saying, please tell them to be quiet. Do you realize what they're saying about you? Yes, I know what they're saying about me. If, if I make them be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. We would expect hoopla celebration, partying. He's here. He's the Messiah. And what do we get? Whoever was chanting back and forth, Hosanna to the son of David, it's late in the day. They've gone to wherever they're staying. They're not following him. They're not seeing what he's going to do. It seems at this point he's almost by himself. He's probably with the 12 and maybe some others who were following with them. 
and he comes in the temple and he looks around and he leaves. He went out to Bethany. It seems that each night of that week, he was either staying maybe with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, maybe camping out on the Mount of Olives. But he was going outside the city to a safer place each night to stay with his disciples so that everything would happen according to his and his father's plan and his timeline. So what seems like it should have been the great moment of crowning the king, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, this is it. He, he finally is letting us tell that he's the Messiah. And seemingly nobody cared. And seemingly nobody wanted him as the Messiah. We aren't interested in somebody coming in peace. They had no clue probably that he was coming to deal with their sin. We don't want him. We need a military commander. We need a king who's going to come and take over and throw off Rome. So they rejected him. I hope you've been reminded again this, this morning that God keeps his promises. So many of these things happen exactly on the timetable, exactly according to the finest detail. Because God keeps his promises. More than that, whether they recognized him or not, Jesus is king. He was on that day, and he is today. He is king. But in spite of that, Israel rejected him. So I would say that please don't reject him today. The gospel is that Jesus came, the rest of that verse in Galatians, to redeem those who were under the law, to provide for salvation, to deal with our sin problems, something that we couldn't do. He offers us what is to us a free gift of salvation. And then we have to receive it. We have to put our faith in him. Please don't reject him the way they did. Believers. The master, the Lord, had need of that donkey. Some of us need to be like Balaam and take a lesson from a donkey this morning. That we need to submit to what he wants us to do. If you're a believer and you know God wants me to do X, and I don't know whether I want to. That means I have to give up this. That means I can't do that. That means a change of plans. Will you obey him? Will you submit to his authority? If you don't want to follow the example of a donkey, then follow the example of his two disciples who did exactly what he said. They found it exactly the way he said it would be. Take an example from the owners of the donkey. The master has need of it. Fine. Yes, it's our donkey. Yes, it would be nice to get it back. But it's his. That whole Romans 12 mindset that I am a living sacrifice. That is my sacrifice to God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. 
I pray for anyone in this room or listening or watching online who has never placed faith in you as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the true King. Lord, give grace that we would humbly repent and find salvation in you. Lord, for those of us who have found you, tasted your salvation, we thank you, we praise you, but I pray that we would be obedient to you, obedient to follow what you've told us in your word, obedient to tell others the good news about what you've done in saving us from sin. Work your will in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.